Welcome to Words to Live By, a podcast series hosted by the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. Each week, we will share some of the wit and wisdom of Ronald Reagan. In essence, Words to Live By, made up of radio addresses and speeches he delivered from the 1960s through the 1980s. The subject today? Well, we're going to delve into a little economics. Yeah, you can call it Reaganomics if you'd like. Ronald Reagan called it common sense. Every day, we hear economists debate a multitude of economic theories, which are as diverse as apple varieties in the produce department. Whether you're a Fuji or a Granny Smith or a wine sap lover, economic theories are usually not as sweet. And even Harry Truman got so frustrated, he asked if he could have a one-handed economist because economists always say, on the other hand... During the 1980 campaign, a new term, supply-side economics, came into vogue. People said, I embraced this theory, and several economists claimed credit for inventing its principles, which I then adopted as the basis for my economic recovery program. Well, to set the record straight, that wasn't true. At Eureka College, my major was economics. But I think my own experience with our tax laws in Hollywood probably taught me more about practical economic theory than I ever learned in a classroom or from an economist, and my views on tax reform did not spring from what people called supply-side economics. When the IRS took as much as 94% of my earnings when I was in Hollywood, after a while I began asking myself whether it was worth it to take another job. Something was wrong with a system like that. When you have to give up such a large percentage of your income in taxes, incentive to work goes down. You don't say, I've got to do more pictures. You say, I'm not going to work for six cents on the dollar. If I decided to do one less picture, that meant other people at the studio in lower tax brackets wouldn't work as much either. The effect filtered down, and there were fewer total jobs available. The same principle that affected my thinking applied to people in all tax brackets. The more government takes in taxes, the less incentive people have to work. What coal miner or assembly line worker jumps at the offer of overtime when he knows Uncle Sam is going to take 60% or more of his extra pay? And the principle applies as well to corporations and small businesses. When government confiscates half or more of their profits, the motivation to maximize their profits goes down, and their owners and managers make decisions based partly on a desire to avoid taxes. They begin looking for tax shelters and loopholes that contribute nothing to the growth of our economy. Their companies don't grow as fast. They invest less in new plants and equipment and hire fewer people. Those are the basic ideas in his words from his autobiography. So we're going to contrast today where Ronald Reagan started in January 1981 and then where the economy stood two and a half years later when he attended the G7 Economic Summit in Williamsburg 40 years ago, two years after his economic recovery plan was put into action. I had come to Washington with my mind set on a program, and I was anxious to get started on it. I don't know what I expected, but my first morning in the Oval Office had a surprising sense of familiarity. It reminded me a lot of my job as governor. On my desk was a schedule of appointments for the day. There was another similarity. Just as I'd come to Sacramento when the state was facing its worst financial crisis in decades, the country, 
was experiencing what many economists called its greatest economic emergency since the Great Depression. The most immediate priority was dealing with double-digit inflation, high unemployment, and a prime interest rate of 21.5%, the highest since the Civil War. As I've said, I believe that policies of the federal government reaching back decades were mostly responsible for the problems. Although I knew we couldn't turn things around overnight, I wanted to begin reversing those mistakes, and now I had a chance to try to do it. With my advisors, I had begun working on an economic recovery plan the first day after the election. The morning after Inauguration Day, at our first cabinet meeting, and a meeting the following day of a team of specialists I had appointed to coordinate economic policy, we began the job of implementing the plan. Its basis was tax reform, reducing federal income tax rates from top to bottom. Simply put, I believe that if we cut tax rates and reduced the proportion of our national wealth that was taken by Washington, the economy would receive a stimulus that would bring down inflation, unemployment, and interest rates. And there would be such an expansion of economic activity that in the end, there would be a net increase in the amount of revenue to finance the important functions of government. One of Ronald Reagan's economic advisors was Milton Friedman, who said simply that Reaganomics had four simple principles, lower marginal tax rates, less regulation, restrained government spending, and non-inflationary monetary policy. That's it. Though Reagan did not achieve all of his goals, he made good progress. Well, so let's hear a little more from the president on his strategy. Any system that penalizes success and accomplishment is wrong. Any system that discourages work, discourages productivity, discourages economic progress is wrong. If, on the other hand, you reduce tax rates and allow people to spend or save more of what they earn, they'll be more industrious, they'll have more incentive to work hard, and money they earn will add fuel to the great economic machine that energizes our national progress. The result? More prosperity for all and more revenue for government. A few economists call this principle supply-side economics. I just call it common sense. I've always thought of government as a kind of organism with an insatiable appetite for money that will grow forever unless you do something to starve it. By cutting taxes, I wanted not only to stimulate the economy, but curb the growth of government and reduce its intrusion into the economic life of the country. Mike Deaver, the president's trusted colleague for many years, used to complain that Ronald Reagan never saw a statistic he didn't love. So we'll listen to more from the president on his strategy. And then in the second half of the podcast, we'll get to the 1983 G7 summit held in Williamsburg and a lot of statistics. In July 1981, Congress approved much of the plan I'd brought to Washington to deal with the economic emergency our country faced. But only after I'd gone to the people to ask their help, to ask them to make their views known to Congress. I had to compromise and accept a 25% reduction over three years instead of the 30% I wanted. But it provided the jolt needed to turn around our economy. The economic expansion that began a year after the first phase of the tax cuts went into effect created more than 19 million new jobs, the largest increase for a comparable period of time in history. 
Meanwhile, the percentage of Americans employed at good jobs rose to an all-time high. As I write this, the expansion is in its 92nd month and still going strong. The 25% tax cut followed by tax reform in 1986 touched off a surge of growth in America that brought down inflation, brought down interest rates, brought down unemployment, and created a cascade of additional tax revenue for government. Realizing they could keep more of what they earned, people went out and made more money. They used this money to buy more houses, more furniture, more appliances, more cars. Corporate as well as personal taxes were simplified and reduced to the lowest rate since 1941. Businesses began investing more in plants and equipment, making their workers more competitive. And instead of throwing money into wasteful shelters and tax dodges, individuals and businesses began investing it in productive enterprises that created growth and more new jobs. Although it didn't bring as much simplification to the tax code as I had hoped, the Tax Reform Act of 1986 reduced the number of personal income tax brackets from 14 to 3. And the top personal tax bracket, which was 70% in 1981, for most Americans to 28%, the lowest rate since 1931. Knowing they could now keep 70% of what they earned instead of paying 70% to the government, the most affluent Americans invested in new projects and new ideas. But contrary to what some of the tax and spend liberals have said, tax reform didn't create a windfall for the rich at the expense of the poor. Instead, it was the other way around. Under the new laws, more than 80% of Americans paid the lowest tax rate, 15%, or no tax at all, and the households of 4 million lower-income working Americans were excused from paying federal income taxes altogether. Meanwhile, the proportion of personal income taxes paid by the top earning 1% of Americans increased by more than a third between 1981 and 1987 from 17.9% to almost 25% during the same period, the tax burden on the poorest half of America's taxpayers fell by almost 20%, from 7.4% of the total to 6.1%. More than 80% of the increased personal income tax revenues since 1981 have come from taxpayers with incomes of over $100,000 a year while the amount paid by those earning less than $50,000 dropped by billions of dollars. By and large, the jobs created during the expansion were good jobs. More than 90% were full-time jobs. A large proportion were in managerial and professional occupations. And many of the best new jobs went to women and minorities. During those six years, the median income for American families increased 12% compared with a decline of 10.5% during the previous decade. The nation's real gross national product, the value of all goods and services produced in the United States, adjusted for inflation, went up 27%. American workers became more productive each hour they worked and made their employers more competitive in world markets. We got government out of the way and began the process of giving the economy back to the people. But I don't take credit. The American people did it themselves, responding to incentives inherent in the free enterprise system. I watched in wonder as they responded and excelled and produced. There is no limit 
to what a proud free people can achieve. More about the Williamsburg Economic Summit right after this brief message. The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation is the nonprofit organization created by President Reagan himself and specifically charged by him with continuing his legacy and sharing his principles, individual liberty, economic opportunity, global democracy, and national pride. We must remain vigilant and work together to share these conservative principles with younger generations. Your role is critical to move our mission forward. Thank you for your continued support. Please visit reaganfoundation.org give. That's reaganfoundation.org give. Now, back to the story. To set the stage, it's May 1983. America welcomed the G7 summit to its shores in Williamsburg, Virginia. Two years later, I was the host at the economic summit when we convened amid the breathtaking colonial beauty of Williamsburg, Virginia. At a time, the U.S. economic turnaround was beginning to gain a strong head of steam. At dinner the first night, the seven of us sat down around a big round table. Everyone fell silent, and someone, I believe it was Helmut Kohl, the Chancellor of West Germany, spoke up. Tell us about the American miracle. He wanted to know how we had managed to create so many new jobs while at the same time bringing down inflation, while most of the industrialized world was still gripped by the recession. Looking out at a semicircle of faces, I launched into what I guess was a variation of the speech I'd been making for years. First, I gave them my thoughts about how I believed excessive tax rates discouraged incentive to produce, and how I thought lower tax rates, in the end, generated more economic growth and also greater revenues for government. Then I told them that what we had done to lower our tax rates and some of the other things we were trying to do, such as reducing the size of government, eliminating unnecessary regulations, and interference in the free market, and turning over to private enterprise some of the functions government had taken over. Everyone around the table just listened in silence as I spoke. It wasn't long after that I began reading about a wave of tax cutting in several of their countries. And at subsequent economic summits, several of the other leaders told me they were introducing economic and taxation policies based on ours, not only cutting taxes, but reducing the regulation of business. The next time I saw them, they said the policies were stimulating the same kind of turnaround we had had in the U.S. The attention of the political and economic world was on Williamsburg 35 years ago, May 28th to May 30th, 1983, when the leaders of the world's industrialized nations, the G7, visited for the ninth annual three-day summit. During the meeting, no tourists or visitors were allowed in the historic area, and those who lived there had to conform to dozens of strict security measures, including constant identification checks. Well, to be precise, Colonial Williamsburg was closed to the public. At the invitation of President Reagan, the summit was attended by British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, Chancellor Helmut Kohl of West Germany, Prime Minister Fanfani of Italy, Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau of Canada, President François Mitterrand of France, and Prime Minister Nakasone of Japan. A full 10 months of preparation went into the event with 
all the elements of the Williamsburg community eventually participating. In his radio address, he highlights the importance of free democratic nations working together for a worldwide economic recovery. Let's listen. My fellow Americans, since the last summit in France a year ago, we've made important progress. Today, America's leading the world into an economic recovery that's already being felt in many of the other countries represented here. Another encouraging development is that, more so than any other time in the recent past, the economic policies of the individual summit countries are converging around low inflation and improved incentives for investment, a good sign for a sustained worldwide recovery. We still have our differences, friends always will, but they're fewer and less critical today than in a long time. I think most of us are agreed on not only where things stand today, but what we must do in the weeks and months ahead. All of us seek the same goal, a healthy, sustained economic recovery that will revive troubled economies in North America, Europe, and the rest of the world. That means more and better jobs, and the way to achieve this is to ensure that the new recovery does not rekindle inflation. We're doing this, and we're seeking trade between our countries that is open and free of protectionist restraints so that both industrial and developing nations can profit from an expanding rather than a contracting market. We're also encouraging responsible domestic economic policies in all of our countries, which will make for greater productivity and more stable exchange rates. Here at home, our economy is already strongly on the mend. The rising tide of recovery is also beginning to reach to many of our friends and allies. But to keep it going, and to extend its benefits to others still in the grip of the worldwide recession, we must all stick to anti-inflationary, high-productivity policies that adapt new technology, retrain workers, and increase efficiency. The worst thing that could happen now, and one that could stall or at least slow the recovery that's currently underway, would be a political resort to quick fixes that could trigger a new round of worldwide inflation and rising interest rates. Now, I know that all of this sounds like economic shop talk, a little remote perhaps from the everyday concerns of the average American. But while this is an economic summit, the topics it is considering have an impact on almost every phase of our lives. Jobs, low inflation, and the opportunity for a better future for ourselves and our families. For when you get right down to it, Freedom is at the base of the enormous productivity of the industrial West, a freedom that has spawned more progress, more individual rights, and more security and opportunity than are enjoyed by any other people living in any other system. And it's our shared belief in freedom that is the strongest bond uniting each of the seven nations meeting here in Williamsburg this weekend. Each of our nations recognizes the rights and dignity of its citizens. We all believe in the words of our founding fathers that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That's a simple enough phrase, but it represents an incredible leap forward from the tyranny and injustice that still haunts too many other parts of the globe. And because we, the nations meeting at the summit, are united in our love of personal and economic freedom, our common commitment to maintain peace and defend liberty is that much stronger. There's been a lot of speculation about what will come out of this weekend summit. I'll leave the detailed analysis to the Monday morning quarterbacks, though for this one, they'll have to wait till Tuesday morning. But I'm confident that we and our friends and allies will leave this meeting more, not less, united. 
that we'll leave it with fewer, not more, differences, and that while it would have been a good session, much will remain to be done. For the issues we address here in this beautiful and historic setting in the spring of 1983 will still be with us for many years to come. The Williamsburg Summit is not the end of our work, but it marks the beginning of a new, more stable period of the free, developed world learning to work together, devising long-term strategies to meet the problems we face, and handing over a better world to the successor generation, the young people born in the post-war era who must carry and protect the torch of freedom as America approaches the 21st century. Until next week, thanks for listening, and God bless you. Thank you for listening. For more information on the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, including information on how to become a member, information on upcoming exhibits at the Reagan Library, and more information on the legacy of President Reagan, please visit reaganfoundation.org. And don't forget to like and follow the Reagan Foundation on all social media platforms. Don't forget to subscribe to the Words to Live By podcast in your iTunes or Google Play stores and on other podcast platforms as they become available. New episodes of Words to Live By come out every Tuesday. Like what you hear? Check out our A Reagan Forum podcast featuring great speeches delivered at the Reagan Library. New episodes drop every Thursday. And don't forget to follow at Ronald Reagan on Facebook, at Ronald Reagan 40 on Twitter, and Reagan Foundation on YouTube. Also, search for us on SoundCloud and Stitcher. <laughs>